0: Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. Uh, Today I'm just going to talk a little bit about a couple chapters at the end of 1 Nephi. This is probably some information that I think it's good for us to know as parents and teachers, but not necessarily... Would you go this in-depth in a class to teach this unless the the question came up? Um, I think this is a really good lens to read the entire Book of Mormon through because this theme that we're going to talk about today is continually repeated throughout the Book of Mormon and is another way and another lens to read the Book of Mormon with. And the lens I'm talking about is the ancient Israelite temple drama as explained to us in the Book of Psalms. And as seen a little bit through the biblical narrative, but we need to understand that the Bible has been edited, that the Bible was edited, completely reworked uh, in Lehi's day. And we read this in Second Kings 22 and 23, where we read about the Jewish apostasy and how they, the religion was changed and that Lehi stood in distinction against some of these changes. And so, brothers and sisters, this is just a brief overview of First Nephi 20 and 21, where I get into the first Israelite temple drama. But this is important. I wanted to make sure we did a short podcast on this because these themes just keep coming up in the Book of Mormon. And it's also a testimony to me that that which was lost unto us has been restored. I think, in my opinion, as we understand the the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles, as we understand the truths taught at the temple anciently, it will really help us to understand what Isaiah is saying and why Nephi is using it. As we follow uh, Jehovah, all of the blessings that were available then will be available today. And so the outline is going to look like this. Essentially, you have uh, the people of the Israelites are called to come to the temple every fall for what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, in the Psalms, there are Psalms of Ascension, where they go up to the temple. And these Psalms are in Psalm 120 to 134. In these Psalms, you can read those. And as you read them, just go and think in your minds what, what it would have been like to ascend to the hill of the Lord and to come to, to Zion. And as they go and as they ascend, they, they invite their families and their children. This is King Benjamin's speech in Mosiah 1 through 6 takes place At the Feast of Tabernacles, as well as Jacob's speech in 2 Nephi 6 through 10. And so, if we understand that this is the background to what's happening and and the themes that are in those texts, we can see the Book of Mormon as a document that's very old. It it validates it as as an ancient document and also puts the Book of Mormon in history. It also helps us understand how the authors of these texts saw God and their relationship to him. And so after the ascension psalms, and by the way, these psalms are all mixed up. Um, the first temple Israelite drama was changed after the destruction of the temple. We don't have kings and queens anymore. And so the meaning was lost unto us, but the original meaning was set The setting in life was the fall festival, the harvest is in, we're going to praise Yahweh, we're going to praise God, and also tie ourselves politically to his representative, which would be the king and queen. And so that's what's happening here at the fall festival. So as the king and queen and the people approach the temple, there was gate uh, texts that associate themselves with coming into the gate of the temple. A couple of excellent psalms that cover this are the fifteenth psalm and the twenty-fourth psalm. The fifteenth psalm has a series of questions and answers that must be given to come in to Zion and to, to the the hill of Zion. You must have certain moral ethical values, and things that you follow in the 15th Psalm. And the 24th Psalm asks the question, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Only those with a clean heart and pure hands. And so you can read that in the 24th Psalm. Over the period of days after the people had assembled in the temple, there would be a drama portrayed where the creation was used as a way to get our bearings with the cosmos and to understand the pre-earth council of the gods and how this took place and how God created things. And a lot of scholars have said that the text of Genesis 1-3 through is rooted in temple theology, that uh, these texts were used as a play or a drama to teach Israel who God was and why the creation took place. And many authors have talked about this, many scholars Part of this drama included a battle with chaos, which was personified as the dragon or Rahab or the sea. And so many psalms involve this battle against chaos, and many books have been written about this. And I've referenced some of them in other podcasts, but on the link we'll give you, there's all kinds of psalms that are associated with God overcoming the chaos. And in this drama narrative, I think what's happening here is I think the king and the queen each partake in this drama and are portrayed in various ways, and we don't have the whole text in front of us. We don't know exactly what's happening here, but I think some of the the narration of like the trials of Sarah that we read about in Genesis, uh, that the queen is portrayed as going through similar trials like unto the king, and the king is portrayed as doing a battle with the sea, battle with the chaos we see this in the narrative of 1 Nephi, where Nephi is cast into the robes of the king, where he does the battle with chaos. We have the the monster Goliath that is slain. Um, He's repackaging David when he kills Laban. And we have Nephi portrayed as fighting the sea when he is literally tied up at sea by his brothers, and his wife cries out for him to be delivered. And there's a lot of Uh, battles with the sea that involve women. For example, in the 15th chapter of Exodus with Miriam, she's cast in that role where they sing the song of the sea, the chaos has been conquered. After the chaos is conquered, there's victory and enthronement. And many songs in the Psalms are related to the enthronement of the king and the queen and the victory over chaos. And the king and queen become the embodiment of the will of God as God's will is put in place And the king and queen become the representatives of God. Uh, There are Psalms that talk about the wedding, how the, the king and queen are wed. Now, they're only wed once, but are they symbolically wed each year as Israel is tied to Yahweh? Perhaps. The 45th Psalm talks about this. Uh, there's, there's a few really key things that happen during the Feast of Tabernacles during this seven-day celebration. The, these three things involve, um, like I said, they're highly symbolic, but they involve the drawing of water ceremony where water is drawn from the spring of Gihon, and it's put into these vessels that are... Um, it's put into a golden vessel, but then it's put into these silver vessels that are then poured over the altar. And the idea is that the water from the spring Gihon is then transferred to the priesthood authority, poured on the altar, and the water trickles down these holes in the altar and goes down into the ground and is cycled back down into the underground, into the deep. And so it's this cycle of life, it's fertility. And so this is happening in the fall festival. What do we want to happen? We want the rains to come. We want fertility. We want the earth to produce. And so the idea is very much like King Arthur. When King Arthur is doing well, the land produces. And so this is Isaiah. This is the mythology of all of our stories. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. We are praising God and praying for rain. A couple other uh, things that happen are is the lighting of the candelabra, where they light these massive torches in the temple. And there's a lot of scholarship out there that says when Jesus gives the sermon Uh, about him being the light of the world that that was probably done at this time period. And then finally, the building of these booths. The the Israelites would build these booths um, with greenery and fruit, and they would stay in them for the seven days to remind them that they were strangers in a strange land. As they left Egypt, they had to live in these booths. They had to live as temporary residents. And so uh, the imagery that I want you to think about is just imagine a family— And they're in a tent or a booth, and there's all this greenery on it. It's to remind you of building a house that's fertile. And then finally, on the eighth day, there would be a massive feast where the king would feed his people, and they would celebrate Yahweh and his triumph over the battle, uh, over the the forces of chaos, there'd be fertility, peace, and prospering in the land. This is one of the main messages that is hammered in First and Second Nephi about prospering in the land. And the Book of Mormon perspective of prospering in the land is that the land is fruitful, and that there's peace, and that there's a king and queen that are doing the will of God, and that the people are tied to God. And so during this drama, the king and queen would make covenants to swear allegiance and a fealty to Yahweh. And the people were put under covenant as were the king and queen. As they made the covenants, they were asked to make the covenant. And the king and queen would take upon themselves the name of God. They would receive the emblems of kingship and they would be anointed. All of this is outlined in the Psalms. And the high priest would do this and the people would see the anointing And then they would make those covenants and they would become sons and daughters of God. And this is outlined in Benjamin's speech. This happens a few times where they swear allegiance to Yahweh and they receive the new name and they become um, this act of salvation. And so all of this is the backdrop to so much of what's happening in the Book of Mormon. And it's a big deal to Nephi and to Lehi. And the reason why I think it's a big deal is because it's it's the backdrop to so many main events in the text of the book of Mormon, which leads us to finally Isaiah 48 and 49. So we're going to go to first Nephi 20, where Nephi is going to quote uh, the 48th chapter or most, you know, mostly quote it. And it's the, it's the feast of tabernacles. So you'll note at the beginning of chapter 20, in the first few verses, the first four verses, you can see that Isaiah is saying, you've been called out of the waters of Judah, verse one, but you're certainly not staying yourselves upon the God of Israel, verse two. Why? Verse four, because your neck is iron sinew and your brow is brass. So he's kind of castigating um, the people at this time. And then go to verse six of chapter 20, first Nephi, thou hast seen and heard all this and will you not declare them and that I have showed The new things from this time, even hidden things, and thou didst not know them. And so they are to know hidden things, but they're not quite getting it. And so verse 8, they're called a transgressor from the womb, but there's this promise of chosenness and connection in verses 8, 9, and 10. Look at the end of verse 9. I will refrain from thee that I cut thee not off. I won't cut you off. Verse 10, I've refined thee and I've chosen thee in the furnace of affliction for mine own sake. Yea, for mine own sake will I do this for I will not suffer my name to be polluted and I will not give my glory unto another. And so there's this promise that Yahweh gives of connection, uh, this connectedness and this name and this glory. And then look in verse 13. Mine hand hath also laid the foundation of the earth and my hand, my right hand, has spanned the heavens. I call unto them and they stand up together. This is the backdrop to Isaiah 48. This is the backdrop to what scholars call Deutero-Isaiah or Second Isaiah. Uh, chapters 40 through 60 or 40 through 66, depending on who you read, is the backdrop um, of these chapters is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so what do we have? We have this drama where we're called to the temple. And when they're called, the people are called to stand up. Why are they doing this? Because they're going to make a covenant with Yahweh. And so what's the covenant? Well, here it is, verse 14. All ye assemble yourselves, we're at the temple, and hear, who among them hath declared these things? These things is the ceremony, is the drama at the first temple. The Lord has loved him, yea, and he will fulfill his word, which he hath declared by them, and he will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall come upon the Chaldeans. That's the combat portion of the festal drama of the Feast of Tabernacles. There's going to be combat, and God will win. Verse 16, come ye near unto me, I have not spoken in secret. When What that essentially means is the king and queen and all of the people there are symbolically called to come to the place where God speaks, to the devir, to the oracle or the holy place. From the beginning, from the time that it was declared, have I spoken, and the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Verse 17 Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel I have sent him, the Lord thy God, who teacheth thee to profit, who leadeth thee by the way thou shouldst go, and hast done it. Couple thoughts. That could be the king as in the king, that could be the king, as in the Messiah, the the king, the son of God, and it could be the prophet. In other words, a representative called to show the way. Think of what Lehi and Nephi are doing up to this point. They're constantly, they're standing in that role. Now, Lehi never becomes a king. Lehi comes to the Americas, but as we'll do in the next few podcasts, not only does Nephi become a king, but he receives the emblems of kingship, and it's cast in this this story of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then finally, there's some instruction. Um, we, we talked a little bit about that, but if you read verse 17 and 18, that's the instruction portion of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then finally, the promise of seed, verse 19. At the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, there's all these symbols associated with seed. Some of it's feasting, but what is seed? You know, you've got the the fruit that they would put on their booths. Seed is essentially Offspring, And when we talk about branches, we're talking about children and trees represent more than just trees. And so look at verse 19 of the 20th chapter. Thy seed has been as the sand, the offspring of thy bowels, like the gravel thereof. His name, Yahweh's name, has not been cut off nor destroyed from before thee. So the Israelites are promised infinite seed like Abraham, there to become kings and queens. And there is no kingdom without a queen. You got to have both. So verse twenty, flee Babylon, flee the Chaldeans, and then look at verse twenty-one of First Nephi twenty, they thirsted not. He led them through the desert. He caused the water to flow out of the rock that rock is in the holy of holies the water coming out we're back to the temple we're back into sacred space and so that in essence is the 20th chapter it's the Feast of tabernacles in miniature where at the end they're promised the name and they're promised seed they're to become kings and queens and receive all the emblems that are associated with that in the first temple drama the next chapter is very similar notice verse 1 they've been called from the womb So we're talking about premortality. I think verse 2 tells me that we're talking about Israel here, an everyday Israel. Look at verse 2. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. I think this is your everyday covenant-keeping member of the church. Or if we lived in the 7th century BC, this is your everyday Israel. And maybe they didn't get to go to the temple every year. Maybe it was like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Maybe they were poor. But God is saying in verse 2, even though you've been hid from the world, even though people don't know who you are, He knows who you are. And I just want to testify of that. I believe that this verse has a lot to do with the everyday Israel. In verse 3 and 4, this is what the servant says. And as you read those verses, I think about... Um, everyone who's ever had to serve and do something really hard, maybe you had a really hard mission or maybe you had an experience where you serve the Lord and you're like, it's just so hard. As I read verse three and four, I think about the sweet statement by President Hinckley when he was a missionary in England and he wrote his dad and he said, dad, I'm I'm wasting my time and your money. And his dad wrote him back and said, forget yourself and go to work. And I really like that. It, to me, it's very powerful how the servant, is just struggling. And I just see that. I see that so much. But the promise in verses five through nine is that the prisoners will go free, that the servant will be victorious. And notice verse nine, show yourselves and they shall feed in the ways and their pastures shall be in all the high places. The prisoners will go free because the servant serves. Notice the middle of verse seven, king shall see and they shall rise. So, people will see the message and they will rise up to it. This is also Feast of Tabernacles imagery. When Israel was called to rise, then they made and kept covenants. So then go to verse 10. After the servant has declared the prisoner shall go free, and they're victorious. Verse 10 says, they shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor the sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them even by the springs of water, and he will guide them, or he shall guide them. Brothers and sisters, that's the tree. That's Revelation 22. When the Holy of Holies comes down out of heaven, right in the middle of it is the tree. And we're back to Lehi's dream. Why do we know this? That's the language that John's using. We're not in the heat, We have food, we have drink, and we're protected. We're in sacred space. And so we're right back again at the temple where we get to a fascinating verse. And this is the 13th verse of 1 Nephi 21, where it says, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, for the feet of those who are in the east shall be established. And break forth into singing, O mountains, for they shall be smitten no more. So I'm getting this from Legrand Baker, and he quotes it and he's got lots of scholarship to back this up, this, this phrase, um, their, their feet will be established, that's nowhere in the King James. And so what does that even mean? To have your feet established in this context, the king is being established on his throne. So this is from Grand Baker, designating the ark as the footstool was not sacrilege. Because a footstool was an essential part of the throne, and no human feet would ever rest upon it, meaning the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, except those of the anointed king, who was the adopted son and legal earthly heir of Jehovah. And so what LeGrand Baker is going to establish is that the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies was going to become the footstool for the king and queen. And as they placed their feet on the footstool, on the Ark, they became... God's representative, and that's what it means to establish your feet. So he goes on. He says, when the king and the ark of the covenant entered the Holy of Holies, Jehovah, having reestablished his earthly kingdom, symbolically returned to his throne in the heavens and left the mortal king, his adopted son and heir to preside in the world. The king's legitimacy was confirmed by his actually taking his seat upon the throne of God. This was important for the king was still Adam. He had regained his garment of light and could reclaim his place on the earthly throne of God. Symbolically, everyone in the audience also participated in the rite of the drama. Thus, Jehovah created a nation of priests and sacral kings. And I would add to the Baker's statement, queens and priestesses, because there is no kingdom without a queen. He goes on. Therefore, sitting on the throne under the wings of the cherubim represented not only priesthood power and temporal majesty, but also security and peace, as is expressed in the 63rd Psalm. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Psalm 63 7. Sigmund Mowingle asserted In the cultic drama, he, meaning the king, represents David. Yahweh is represented by his ark, the footstool, before the throne on which he, God, is invisibly seated. It is the king who receives Yahweh's promises, his blessings, and his power, and he transmits them to the community which he represents. The ark of the covenant, serving as the footstool to the throne of God, represented the authority of God in three ways. One, it was the means provided by Jehovah by which the king ascended to the throne of God. 2. It contained within it the sacred emblems of kingship, priesthood, and the fruit of the tree of life. And 3. It was the place where the king's feet were established after his coronation. Another scholar observes that just as the ark is the symbol of Yahweh's person, so Mount Zion corresponds to the divine mount of assembly, and the temple itself is the earthly counterpart of the divine king's heavenly palace. Thus, The king's being on the throne with his feet securely planted on the Ark of the Covenant was a multifaceted affirmation of his royal status and of his acceptability before God. This idea of kingship being represented by the establishment of one's feet is represented in a prophecy of Isaiah about the time of the restoration of the gospel. The verse was on the brass plates but it is not in the King James Version of the Bible. And it reads, as we've read, Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, for the feet of those who are in the east shall be established and break forth into singing, O mountains, for they shall be smitten no more, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. And so, to me, I think this is very significant for a couple of reasons. Nephi's establishing himself as the king He's also establishing the fact that he's the representative of God and his people are going to follow God. They're going to follow his commands and Nephi is going to take them back. And so how does 1 Nephi 21 end? Well, if you read verses 14 through 17, there's powerful verses, both masculine and feminine, powerful symbols about God not forgetting us. And they're very sacred. And then also at the end, there's this promise of clothing In the 18th verse where God says, and this is part of the festival drama, that he will clothe Israel, the king and queen, put on the robes of kingship, and... God says he will do that to Israel, and then it ends from verse 19 to the end of a promise of seed. And so, brothers and sisters, this is just a brief overview of 1 Nephi 20 and 21, but this is important. I wanted to make sure we did a short podcast on this because these themes just keep coming up in the Book of Mormon, and it's also a testimony to me that that which was lost unto us has been restored. I can't say this enough. That the Book of Mormon establishes this idea, this truth that God is our father and that not only that, we have the father in heaven and we have a mother in heaven. And it was established and taught in the kingdom and the throne of God on earth as the king and queen represented them to the people. And like I said a lot of this has been lost unto us, but it's preserved in the Psalms and it's preserved in what scholars call Second Isaiah. Isaiah 40 through the end is very much concerned that we understand this. And so I think in my opinion as we understand the the festival of the Feast of Tabernacles as we understand the truths taught at the temple anciently, it will really help us to understand what Isaiah is saying and why Nephi's using it. Uh, Like I said before, I think he's using it here to establish uh, his connection with God, both as a king and as an authorized representative from a prophetic perspective. But I think he's also using it to promise as we follow uh, Jehovah, All of the blessings that were available then will be available today. And so with that, we'll close. Thanks for listening. And if you liked what we talked about today, please uh, share it with the people that you have influence over. Let's make his name known in the world and be a force for good. And with that, we'll see you next time.